May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I'd like to turn your attention to that passage in Revelation, chapter 19, printed in your bulletin on page 8. Even better, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Revelation 19, verses 1 through 9. Last week, I preached based on a passage in Revelation, and I said at that time that Revelation is based on a series of visions that God gave John. And traditionally, it's, uh, this book has been ascribed to the Apostle John, a disciple of Jesus, while he was on the island of Patmos. And in these visions, God is revealing how the story of, of history unfolds and comes to a great consummation. And uh, John is writing this to encourage the Christians in his day to stay faithful to God in spite of the difficult circumstances that they're in, because God is still on the throne. And so we come to the end, or we approach the end of this book, and uh, the consummation of history becomes more clear as we go along. One thing we have to do when we read this book, which is filled with symbolism, and uh, there's great deal of, of uh, mystery in terms of how to interpret some of these symbols. But one thing we must do is get to the message and understand that this is a message from God. In fact, the end of our reading says, uh, these are the words of God. And uh, these are the true words of God. The angel of John, the angel says to John. This gives us a place to stand as we think about the world and where history is heading. Do you believe that these are the true words of God and that this revelation came to John through Jesus Christ? Well, uh, this particular passage in chapter 19 is dealing with the, the triumph of God's justice over evil and injustice. And, you know, there is a longing in the human heart for good to triumph over evil. And for the universe, the the story of the universe and all of creation to end, not in tragedy, but in redemption. We have this desire to see good triumph over evil for wrongs to be made right. That's why so many of our stories deal with that very issue. And as you're watching Star Wars, you want to see Luke Skywalker defeat Darth Vader. That needs to happen. You're watching Lord of the Rings, and you want to see Frodo destroy the ring so he can take down Sauron. Uh, Those of you maybe who've seen the Avenger movies which have broken all sorts of records at the box office. We want to see the Avengers defeat Thanos. It just has to happen. There is something in us that has that longing. And so God has, I believe, implanted that longing in our hearts, 
Christian writers talk about the story within the story, that these stories, that these epics that we have been telling ourselves for centuries, millennia as human beings, that those stories of good triumphing over evil ultimately point to the story, the great story of God's redemption, and that this longing that we have will one day be fulfilled. God has put those longings in our hearts so that we might look to Him for ultimate redemption and justice. And so that's what this chapter is speaking to and the chapters that come after. And it tells us that at the end there is going to be great justice over evil and then there is going to be a party. (laughs) There is going to be a marriage feast for the people of God. God is going to gather his people in his presence because of what Christ the Lamb has done and will be in fellowship in the presence of God forever. This is where history is headed, according to this vision. I want to just isolate these first five verses here. As I got into this passage of Scripture, began to really dig into it, became clear that um, I was headed for a 40-minute sermon, and uh, not a Presbyterian anymore, so I can't do that without getting in trouble, so we'll cut this in half. And we'll go with verses 1 through 5. And in this section, verses 1 through 5, we see this great multitude in heaven crying out, praising God for His justice. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. How often do we look at the justice of the world and we shake our heads and we say, it's not true, it's not right. But the justice of God is true and just. And then he says in the second part of verse 2, for he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of of his servants. Now, who is the great prostitute? Well, if you study um, the previous chapters, and we don't have time, I don't have time to take you there, but if you study chapter 17 and chapter 18, it becomes clear that the great prostitute refers to the Roman Empire. We have to remember the first century context. The Roman Empire was in charge. The Roman Empire had from an earthly perspective, all the cards, all the power, all the authority. And they ruled with an iron fist. And so John, if this is indeed, according to tradition, the Apostle John who was on the island of Patmos, he was being exiled because of the opposition of the Roman Empire to Christianity. And in chapter 18, he paints a picture of the fall of Rome or the Roman Empire. And now in chapter 19, the people of God are praising God for this justice that has come. Now, if you would have told somebody when John was writing this in the first century that the Roman Empire was going to indeed fall, they probably would have scoffed and laughed at you. Because in the first century, Rome was at the height of its power and prosperity and geographical um, might. 
And so people were talking about Rome. The poets, some of the poets of Rome were talking about this is a, an empire that will endure forever. An empire without end because of all of its wealth and power and authority. And yet we know what happened. This prophecy came true. The city of Rome still stands, of course, but it's talking about the Roman Empire. And that fell. In the west, it fell in 449. In the east, it fell about a a thousand years later or so. I think 1480 was the date of the fall of the eastern empire, the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And when we see things like that happening in history, friends, when we see God's word being fulfilled, again, John is writing this first century, and then this happens. It actually happened in later centuries. When we see these kinds of prophecies being fulfilled in history, it ought to give us confidence that the rest of this is going to be fulfilled. Again, these are the true words of God. Do we believe this? Do we believe this is where history is headed? Well, why does God judge the Roman Empire? Look at verse 2 once again. The Roman Empire, the great prostitute, has corrupted the earth with her immorality. Porneia is the word there, the Greek word. We get our word pornography from that. Really, it could be translated, I think, in the plural, with her immoralities. And brought corruption to the earth with her immoralities. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now I want to take some time, and this is why I had to break this sermon up, to give us a little background on what was happening in the Roman Empire in the first century. Because when we hear in this culture, we often hear about the judgment of God, and we get kind of allergic to that. There's sort of a knee-jerk response, among some people at least, I don't want to hear about the, the judgment of God. We are fine to hear about the love of God. But the judgment of God grates on us when we hear it. But we have to remember that God's love is a holy love, and God is righteous, and God is just. And so he cannot let injustice and evil triumph. He has to make what is wrong, he has to make it right. And the promise is that is going to happen. And what was happening in the Roman Empire with regard to immorality was filled with gross injustice and violence. And so I want to just, again, to give us some context here to understand why the people in heaven are praising God that the Roman Empire has fallen. So this is a little different than what we get on a normal Sunday morning, and it's maybe not easy to hear because uh, there was a lot of darkness at the heart of the Roman Empire when it came to all sorts of things, and particularly with sexual immorality. So let me just give you a little background. This is based on a book called Sexual Morality in a Christless World. In Rome, sex was mainly about male domination and male gratification. There was not a belief or an understanding or a belief in um, sexual orientation. It was about sexual gratification and domination with whomever you could get away with, whatever you could get away with. 
if you belonged to a certain status, you could get away with a whole lot. And so it was common for a Roman male citizen to visit prostitutes, a married male citizen to visit prostitutes in the temple. This was big business. Visit male and female prostitutes. It was acceptable, common for the male to have sexual relations with slaves, his slaves, male and female. Adultery was no problem for a Roman male citizen. And then probably the most difficult thing to hear about and for me to think about as a father of young boys is the pedophilia that was practiced and celebrated in this culture. The relationship between an older man and a younger boy was celebrated in the Greco-Roman world. And they had a way of soothing their conscience in doing these things. They would say that this relationship of an older man to the younger boy was a meeting of the male minds. The female was inferior. But this was a way for the male minds to meet. Or this is a way to teach manliness to this little boy. These boys were groomed in the gymnasiums where they worked out in the nude and the men would groom them and pick them out in those arenas. Some of these young boys were abducted from their families, four and five years old, and made into sex slaves. So this is the kind of stuff that was happening in the Roman Empire when it came to sexual practice and morality. Now, for women, they were expected, the married woman was expected to stay home and produce legitimate heirs for the male. And in some instances, adultery on the part of the woman could lead to capital punishment. Again, it was about male dominance and male gratification. And so, God is saying here, this injustice is not going to stand. That those who have been victimized are going to get justice, and the victimizers are going to be held to account. And that's why heaven is praising God for his justice. That's why they're proclaiming the goodness of a righteous God. God is not going to let such injustice go unanswered. This immorality at the heart of it, at the heart of this, was that Rome had created its own gods. Rather than worshiping God the Creator, they created their own gods. And when you create your own gods, you create your own what? You create your own morality. You create your own ethics. And so that's what has happened. That's what happened in Rome. And I think we can say even today in our culture, we see this happening. See, Rome is sort of a stand-in, not just for first century, the Roman Empire, but it's a stand-in for all cultures and societies that ultimately reject or turn away from God, the true creator, and will not submit, will not submit to his revelation, will not live according to how he has designed creatures to live. Particularly where it comes to this area of sexual immorality, we see this as a great symptom of that rebellion against God as creator. 
prideful rebellion against God as creator, an unwillingness to accept our creaturely existence. And so corruption comes to the earth, and because of that, God judges. And then um, the second thing that is pointed out here is that the Roman Empire shed the blood of God's servants. He has avenged on her the blood, and literally it's the blood by her hands of his servants. So the Roman Empire has on their hands, on its hands, the blood of God's servants. And God says, I'm going to avenge that. I'm going to make that right. Okay. And again, first century context, we can think about what was happening at that time. Um, persecution against Christians in the early church was sporadic. Sometimes it was very ferocious. Sometimes it was very intense. Other times it was not as much. It was not um, widespread. It was, it was more local, and sometimes it didn't necessarily involve violence. But there was time in the first century where it really flared up against the Christians. And one such time was the time of Nero. And uh, some people believe that Revelation was written when Nero was the emperor in the 50s and 60s. Nero was a very sick, twisted individual, if you ever studied about Nero. Very perverted, twisted mind and soul. And you know the stories, many of you know the stories of what he did to the early Christians. How he would set Christians on fire and use them for torches. And how he would wrap Christians in animal skin and feed them to wild animals for sport. This is the kind of bloodshed that was happening in Rome in the first century at different times. And you can imagine as Christians went through that and they saw other people go through that, their brothers and sisters in the faith, and they asked the question, does God care? Does God see? Does God know what is going on here? And this vision that God gave John for these Christians and for us today assures us that God does see. And God will see to it that wrongs are made right, that there will be justice, ultimate justice. And so he will, he will, God will take vengeance. And by the way, that means that Christians should not take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so... This statement here and and throughout the Bible, that principle of God is the one who takes vengeance, uh, means that that Christians, while we can practice self-defense and while we we can protect the innocent, and again, in a self-defensive posture, we don't take vengeance on those who have harmed us. We look to the state to protect us, and we can, I believe, engage in self-protection but we don't take vengeance ourselves against wrongdoers. Because, why? We believe that God is the God of ultimate justice. And so we're not going to be, you know, if you don't believe this, what happens? You become filled with anger and bitterness and hatred and vengeance. You begin to get a vengeful heart. And you can see in parts of the world where this is a cycle of violence over and over and over again. But that's not to be the case with Christians. Because we believe in this. And so you have Christians today who 
are suffering persecution. In fact, just recently the British government had a study on Christians and persecution, a global a study of global persecution against Christians, and they said this is reaching almost genocidal proportions in our world today and wanting the world to pay attention to this. That, that's what the, the report actually says. We're getting to the genocidal threshold when it comes to some of the most vulnerable and poor people in the world, Christians, who are being persecuted. But you think about the stance that Christians are called to take here when people persecute them. In Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday, we had this terrible bombing that happened and over, what, 200 and so people were killed? 250, I think. Three churches, is that right? And you know how they responded to this? I've been kind of following this. One way that they responded to this is they called the Christians together to pray for the grace to forgive the people who had done this to them and their families. And the leaders are saying, don't go down the road of vengeance. And God is going to use this somehow for his glory. What a testimony to us. We leave it to God. We leave it to his ultimate justice. And we're called to love. (laughs) We're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Again, there's a place for self-defense. The state should play a role in protecting Christians. But here in the first century, there's none of that. The state is is the one who is perpetrating this evil. The state has put itself in the place of God as the ultimate authority and power. And so, really, the book of Revelation, if you think about it, is a political critique of a system that is maintaining itself on violence and oppression and is making itself the ultimate authority in society. A strong political critique here in the book of Revelation. Richard Bachman, in his book on on Revelation, he says, talking about this bloodshed that happened in the first century, he said, it's a mistake to think that Revelation opposes the Roman Empire only because of its persecution of Christians. It opposes a system of power that is maintained through violence and oppression. And so... All those who have been slain in this system, their blood cries out for justice. And so you see in verse 24, if you have your Bible open, you can see it there in verse uh, 24 of chapter 18, just before we get to 19, it talks about what was going on in the Roman Empire. It says, And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on earth. The blood of all innocent people cries out for justice. And God is promising here a resolution to that. And so we can think about that in our day. How many murders go unsolved? How many families are still looking for justice? How many children in the inner city are shot and killed? How many unborn children have been killed in the womb? Because God is righteous, He will make things right. And that is the promise, and that is the hope. And so how should we respond to such a vision? What should our response be? Three responses here, and then we'll wrap it up. First of all, the saints in heaven are praising God for his righteousness. 
They're thanking God for His righteous judgment. And we should join this course of praise and thank God that He is a righteous ruler and that the scales will be balanced and that creation itself will be one day completely redeemed. We should rejoice that this is the God that we worship and serve. There is this longing in our hearts for justice to be fulfilled, and the promise is this justice will be fulfilled. When we see injustice, we recoil. We cry out for justice to be done. Even in petty things, even when we're watching a a baseball game or a hockey game, which happened this week, when we see the officials did not make the right call, we get up in arms, we want justice to be done. Heaven is rejoicing and praising God that that day is coming. And we should praise God for His righteousness and His justice. But also, there is a call here not just to praise God for His righteousness and justice, but there's a call in Revelation to repentance. To repentance. In fact, in chapter 18, uh, in verse 4, There are these words, come out of her. Again, this is about the fall of the Babylonian or the Roman Empire. It says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. So God is calling people out of that system, out of that culture, into the marriage supper of the Lamb. So they're under judgment, but God is calling people to come out from that. So they don't have to face the judgment. There is this invitation to belong to. The city of God, the eternal city of God. This invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we praise God that He, in His grace and mercy, has called us to that. To that marriage supper of the Lamb. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb because we only are able to fellowship with God in His presence because of the work of the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world, and for our sins. And so I think one way to react to this as Christians, at least on one level, is to understand that when God is judging the world for immorality and for bloodshed, we can say, there but for the grace of God go I. Because underneath of the immorality is what? Lust. And underneath the bloodshed is what? Hatred in your heart towards other people. And Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount that that is God's standard of righteousness and perfection. That is what He expects from all of us. Not to have hatred and not to have lust in our heart. Because from that flows these sorts of things. And so... I think all of us can say we have fallen short of that righteous standard. We have not gone all the way down the line as some of these people did and some people do today. But it starts in the heart. And so we need the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God in our life. This is a call to repentance and to join the supper of the Lamb who was slain for us and to be washed clean. And we're thankful that God has done that in our life. And we, as the church of God, continue to uh, issue that invitation to the world. 
And so you don't have to be under the judgment of God. You can join the marriage supper of the Lamb as you come in repentance and faith in what God has done for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. Judgment is coming. But the good news is that God is a God of salvation. He does not delight in the death or the destruction of the wicked. He delights in showing mercy. And so that is our message. Judgment is coming, but there is a God of mercy who has made a way for you to join the marriage supper, to join in fellowship. So we respond by rejoicing that God is a God of justice. We respond by repenting and offering an invitation through repentance of people or to people who are under the judgment of God. And then finally, this vision, and this is probably the main point, this vision gives us confidence to stand for what is right in a world that is turning away from God. Confidence to stand when it's not popular. Confidence to speak the truth when it's not comfortable. The first century Christians had a message that oftentimes was in conflict, a message of morality that was in conflict with their culture in their day. And they paid oftentimes with their very life. Some of them did. And we're called to take a stand for what is right and true, to teach this to our children and to our grandchildren and to point them to the God of the Bible. We live in a, in a changing world, a topsy-turvy world. Things are rapidly changing. I don't know if you've ever had, some of you I know have had vertigo before. I've had vertigo. That's a terrible thing to have. I remember the first time I had it, I was with a friend, and I was actually helping a friend move into his house. He had just bought a house and was moving into this house, and I'm carrying a box, and, and the floor began to do this. And I thought to myself, this, this floor is going to have to be torn out. Something's wrong with the subfloor. It's not level. And I was feeling sorry for my friend. And then as the day progressed, I realized, no, something's wrong with me. And the world began to spin around. <laughs> so I had to lay down and be still. And I had to lay down and I had to be still to stop the spinning and just focus on one thing. If you had a severe case of vertigo, you know exactly what I'm saying. You move to the right or left too much, it starts spinning again. And so I had to stay still and I had to focus on one thing. And that allowed me to get my bearings. And in a, in a way, that's a picture of what Scripture is like and this vision is like for us. We need to stand still and keep our eyes on Christ and His Word. These are the words of God, the true words of God. In a world that is spinning, in some ways we think it's spinning out of control and we can feel despair about that. But this gives us confidence to stand for the truth and for what is right and to believe in the words of that hymn, this is my Father's world, that though the wrong seems off so strong, He is the ruler yet. He is the ruler yet. That is a place for us to stand. And let's do that. For the glory of God. Amen. We thank you, God, for your word. We do need to be reorientated time and time again to the truth of your word. 
We can lose our bearings. We can lose our way. But you have given us these precious words to strengthen us, to help us to stand, to have hope, and to share this message of hope with others. Give us the grace by your Holy Spirit to do that, we pray. For the good of our souls and the good of others, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.